So you can turn uh, this morning in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And as you're doing that, I want to tell you the story of two men. So two men who had very different paths, but also two men who ended up, at the end of the day, in the same place. The first was a judge in the highest court of the province. He grew up in a wealthy home. He was always successful in school. He, he graduated from a prestigious law academy. He had a successful career as a lawyer, and now he has kind of reached the pinnacle of that. He is a judge on one of the highest courts in the land. That's the first man. The second man is really the exact opposite of that. He was raised in a difficult family in a difficult part of town. He, was, he, he never graduated his high school. He never had a steady job or a steady relationship. In fact, uh, this man spent time in prison for burglary and battery, and the person who sentenced him was the judge that I had just mentioned. But in God's providence and grace, both of these Men gave their lives to the Lord Jesus and ended up attending the same church in the city. The two men would take communion together. They would sing praises to their God together. Their children would run around after the service playing together. Now the question, this is a true story by the way. Now the question I want to to pose to you from this story is who had the harder path to the Lord. You know, the prestigious and prosperous judge coming to know the Lord or the bruised and broken ex-convict coming to know the Lord. Now immediately we probably think, well, it's got to be the ex-convict. I mean, his, his life was a mess and, and always had been. His, his influences were, were probably much worse than the influences on the judge. He had all of the odds stacked against him. He was the greater sinner in this case. But as we'll see from our passage this morning, perhaps a more dangerous barrier to knowing God is not the sin of theft and violence, but rather that of pride, self-righteousness, self-dependence, and self-exaltation is arguably the chief sin keeping people out of the kingdom of God today. I mean, think of it. Why do so many people reject God in our society today? Well, oftentimes it's because they don't think that they need God. You know, they'll, they'll admit that they sin, but they won't admit that they are sinners. They'll admit that they aren't perfect, but they won't recognize that the standard is perfection. They will say, I, I may do bad things, but I am not as bad as that guy over there. Well, the problem is, in God's eyes, it's not about how bad you are. It's about how good you're not. And we'll see from our, our passage that unless you're willing to recognize how good you are not before the Lord, you're going to end up 
rejecting the Lord of glory, and he is going to end up rejecting you. And so with that, let's read our passage this morning, Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, (coughs) he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha. And none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. And when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the word of the Lord. This morning's passage is really a special passage because it marks the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the book of Luke. Thus far, Jesus has been going through a a 30 years of of preparation for this moment, for his ministry. Luke says in chapter chapter 2, verse 52, that Jesus has grown in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with man. So he's growing up into this man of God. And after that, we, we saw that Jesus was anointed by the Spirit in his baptism. And the Father proclaimed from heaven, this is my beloved Son. He, def- he, he affirms the divine sonship of Jesus. And then after that, last week we saw he, he entered into the wilderness. 
where he passed the first test of the devil. And he now emerges out as one who is victorious. And as verse 14 says, in the power of the Spirit. And he emerges as one who is going to go and complete the task at hand that God has for him. And in this passage, we're going to get a taste of what that task is. Of what the mission of Jesus Christ is all about. Did Jesus come to overthrow the Roman authorities? Did Jesus come to bring judgment and vengeance on the wicked of this world? Did Jesus come to to preach acceptance and tolerance for all and for the oppressed? Did Jesus come to liberate those who are oppressed? Why did did Jesus come and what is his mission? And then Luke, that's kind of the first question that we're wondering. And then Luke He's posing an implicit question for all of us to think about, for all of the the readers. And that is, are you on board with that mission? Will you accept the mission of Jesus and all that it requires of you? And will you join him in his mission? Before we get to, to those questions, let's first look at the setting of our passage. And so verses 14 and 15 say this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And so you can picture this. Jesus has been in the wilderness, and now he he comes out of the wilderness, and he is ready to start his ministry, and he has defeated the devil on this first occasion. He's filled with the power of the Spirit. And where does he go? He goes and he starts teaching in the synagogues and all of the surrounding regions. Now very quickly, we we see what Jesus' ministry is going to be defined by here. His ministry is going to be defined by teaching. See, Christianity is, is not simply a religion of being. It's a religion of teaching. We don't just just carry with us a way of life. Jesus doesn't just walk around and say, like, look at my life and then you'll know the answer. No, we carry with us a message. Good news that is, be, is, is to be proclaimed. And Jesus did many things. He, he healed people. He cast out demons. He gave sight to the blind. He fed the hungry. But what he did most and what was his priority was teaching the message of the gospel. The other things were in addition to that. And so I think that's a small point of application for us as a church, for us as the people of God. Our primary goal is to teach people the message of the gospel. We don't neglect the humanitarian aspects of our Christian walk, but they should never be placed above the command for us to, to be teaching as Jesus came and taught the message of the gospel. And we see that Word is, is starting to get around now about this Jesus fellow. That there are, there are whisperings about this man from Galilee who is teaching with a unique authority and a power over the supernatural. And I'm sure that these rumors have now reached the hometown of Jesus, which is Nazareth, where Jesus is about to enter. And in verse 16 says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. 
Now, Nazareth is, is special, as I said, because this is where Jesus grown up. Now, these were, were the streets that he played on as a boy. This is where his carpentry business would have been. This is where he would have known all of the, the other children who have now grown up as well and who are living in Nazareth in this neighborhood. And there's an anticipation that you can feel for his arrival. You know, Nazareth wasn't a big place. It wasn't a prestigious place. And so for this prophet, this, this miracle worker, this great teacher to come from Nazareth, it was a big deal for them. You know, it's like if something big came out of Smith's Falls. When I moved here, I remember telling people, um, they're like, what is Smith's Falls like? What is Smith's Falls known for? And I think my answer was, I think Snoop Dogg visited one time to the weed factory. And it's kind of like Nazareth. Not much good comes out of Nazareth. One of the, one of the followers of, of Jesus, eventually, when, when they tell him that someone, that the Messiah has come, Jesus of Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so the fact that there's this, this prophet, this miracle worker from Nazareth is a big deal to them. And so Jesus, being the teacher he is, he, he's going to go and he's going to start teaching in the synagogue in Nazareth. And now there's a few things to note here. First, <clears throat> what is a synagogue? And so you can pick up your Bible, you can read through the whole Old Testament, and you'll never once come across the word synagogue. But then all of a sudden you open up your New Testament, and synagogue is very prevalent. You know, Jesus is going and teaching in the synagogues. The apostles are going and teaching in the synagogues. And so where does this idea of synagogue come from? And so to give you a little bit of, of history, in Jewish history, synagogues arose during what was called the Babylonian exile. So the people of God were exiled. They were sent away from Jerusalem because of their sin, taken to Babylon. A bunch of others spread out throughout the land. And the temple, which was the main place of worship, was completely destroyed. It was leveled to the ground uh, and there was no place to, to worship God. And this is when the synagogues began to arise. There were gatherings of people who would come together to read the Torah, to pray together, and to study as they were in exile. And eventually they, they became a, a central part to Jewish life and worship. Now, of course, the, the temple was still the pinnacle. That's why they went back and rebuilt the temple as the central place of worship. But for most Jews, especially the ones dispersed, they could only visit the temple three, maybe four times a year. And so much of their teaching and worship was in the synagogues. And by Jesus' time, the, the synagogue was then of extreme importance for Judaism. I read uh, in one of my commentaries that at the time Jesus would have been ministering in Jerusalem itself, there was probably about 480 uh, different synagogues. <clears throat> and what I find interesting from this is that even though the synagogue isn't prescribed in Scripture, nowhere were, and by saying that I mean nowhere were the Jews commanded to gather at the synagogue, and yet Jesus affirms the legitimacy of these gatherings. And he affirms it by, by attending them and participating in them. And so one thing I think that we can take away from that is that, that God has woven some freedom into how he is worshipped. You know, there's certain elements that must be present that were commanded, the, the preaching of the word, prayer, 
uh, singing to the Lord, practicing the, the sacraments. But there is also freedom in exactly how that is done. And sometimes we can impose this cookie-cutter worship method or, or service on Scripture, but that's not what Scripture or Jesus himself gives us. He, he, he gives us a certain level of, of freedom of how we're to worship, the, worship God. So that's a, that's a quick aside. And then the second thing we see is that it was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. So going to the synagogue on the Sabbath was just what Jesus would do. He went to, to worship the Lord alongside the people of God. And the same ought to be true of us as Christians. You know, when, we, when we follow Jesus, we want to follow what Jesus does. That's what being a disciple means. It means that we follow Jesus. And what does Jesus do? What well, says Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, we don't have synagogues anymore, and we don't have uh, a Sabbath anymore, but we do have churches, and we do have the Lord's Day where we gather to worship. And so if we want to follow Jesus Christians, then what should we do? Well, as was his or her custom, he or she went to church on the Lord's Day. There's this mindset that you can you can love Jesus, follow Jesus, but you don't have to be with the people of God. And really, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that as we follow Jesus, we do what Jesus does. What Jesus does is come to gather with the people of God, and what we should do is come and gather alongside the people of God if we are actually going to follow Jesus. And so you need to make sure that gathering for worship is a priority for your life. It was for Jesus, and it should be for you. And so that's, the, that's kind of the background. You have Jesus traveling around to these synagogues, word coming around about Jesus being this wonderful teacher. Now all of a sudden he makes his great homecoming by coming to Nazareth, and then he's going to start now teaching to the people there. And so look at verses 16 and 17. On the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. <clears throat> and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And now a typical liturgy in a synagogue would involve a few things. So you'd have uh, the initial blessing given by the ruler of the synagogue when you came. You would say the Shema together. You know, Hear, O Israel. Uh, the Lord our God is one. You would say that together. And then you'd have a reading from the law, the Torah. Then you would have a reading from the prophets. And then you'd have an exposition from one of the readings. And so what we're going to see here is that Jesus has been asked to do the reading of the prophets here. And the exposition of that. And now the ruler of the synagogue probably heard about this Jesus guy and wanted to give him a chance now to teach. And we heard that he's a good teacher, so we're going to see if these rumors are true. And he's going to see if he really is the amazing teacher that everyone has, has heard about. And so he says, okay, can you read from the prophet Isaiah and teach on the passage that you're reading? It's kind of like in sports. You know, when someone is, has played their whole life in some sort of junior league and they've done really well, and you're not really sure, though, if when they get to the big leagues, they're actually 
they're actually going to be able to do it. Maybe, maybe they're a little bit overrated. Maybe they're going to be that first overall pick who's a complete success, like Austin Matthews, four goals on his first uh, game in the NHL, or he might be a complete bust, like Greg Oden. And you probably don't know who Greg Oden is because he's a great bust. And so that's what, 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 we're, what we're going to see here. Is, are the rumors true about Jesus? Is he going to be this star that we've heard about, or is he, is he just a bust? And when the time comes... Jesus stands up, the scroll is passed to him, and we read these words in verses 18 to 21. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now we're going to spend some time examining what Jesus says here in in this passage. Uh, The passage he reads from is Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 to 2. And as I already mentioned earlier when I read it, this is of extreme significance to the Jews because every Jew knows that this passage speaks directly of the Messiah coming and of his eschatological reign. You know, this, this would mark a, a new era for the people of God in which the promises of God would be fulfilled and they would be set free from their, from their uh, oppressors. And up until this point, Every single person who has ever read this passage, looked at this passage, has always looked at it in a futuristic way. It's always been someone is coming who will do this thing. Someone is is coming and this is going to happen. God is going to send to us a liberator. But then something happens that has never happened before. Jesus, with the the biggest mic drop in, in all of history reads this passage, rolls up the scroll, gives it back to the attendant, sits down, and everyone is, is sitting and, and staring at him in silence, wondering what he's going to say. And he says, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, this is no longer a future reality. There's, there's no more waiting. I am the anointed one. I am the one who sets the captives free. I am the one who brings the year of the Lord's favor. The time has come. And so Jesus embraces the identity and mission of the Messiah here. And so now what exactly is this mission? So we'll look now at what he says from Isaiah. And there's really four things that Jesus has come to do. And many of these both have both uh, literal and metaphorical fulfillments. Now, some people will completely spiritualize these passages, taking out any physical or social or political aspects of Jesus' ministry, while others will, will swing the pendulum completely the other way and say, all of this is only completely literal. It's the only way that you can take it. But it's really this, this middle road that is the correct interpretation, I believe. Jesus is making both physical claims that he will come and he will heal the blind. 
But he's also making spiritual claims and that he will come and he's going to heal a greater blindness, the blindness of our hearts. And so now let's, now let's look at what Jesus says he came to do. So first, Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. Now, what does Jesus mean by poor? Does he mean the financially poor? And if so, is, is the good news only for the financially poor? Well, I think in order to understand what Jesus means by poor, we need to understand first how Isaiah, the guy he's quoting, uh, is using the term poor. So the Hebrew word that he actually uses here carries with it the meaning of, of being humble or being meek. For example, the, the same word is used in Numbers 12, verse 3, which says, Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all who are on the face of the earth. So don't think what the author is saying there is that Moses was a poor man. And where does the Bible say that? What it's saying is that Moses was a humble man. He was a weak man. It's that same word, poor, that is being used here. And so the word poor doesn't mean simply financially poor, though it can often include that group of individuals, but rather it means someone of, of spiritual poverty and humility before the Lord. Someone who recognizes their sinfulness, someone who recognizes that they are in need and recognizes that, that, that help must come from outside of themselves. I think the best example of this is the parable that Jesus will tell us later in Luke chapter 18. Let me read this for you. It says, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give, all the, give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, in these, these two men, one was poor in spirit and the other was not. One was humble and the other was not. One saw himself as a sinner in desperate need of a Savior. The other did not. He saw himself as his own Savior. And Jesus says that he has come to proclaim the good news to those who are poor. Now, the gospel is not, is not good news to the prideful and the self-righteous because they don't, need, they don't see themselves in need of the mercy of God. And now the question is, which of those two men are you more like? Now, is your life marked by pride and self-dependence? Or by humility and dependence on the Lord. Jesus has come to preach good news to the poor. That's who the gospel is for. Second, 
Jesus has come to proclaim liberty to the captives. And then further down in, in verse 18, it says, to actually set at liberty those who are oppressed. Now, I don't think this is a, is a literal applica- application here and, uh, that Jesus is intending, though we do see that Christian principles have led to the abolishment of, of slavery, led to the freedom of captives and the oppressed. But what Jesus is really talking about here is not the liberation of Israel from the Roman oppressors or slaves from their masters, but he is talking about bondage to spiritual masters, captive to to sin. Jesus says in John 8, verse 34, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Do Do you know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that all of humanity, for all of humanity's sins, is in a state of slavery to sin. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean to be a slave of or a slave to sin? Well, it means simply that sin is your master. Sin drives you. Sin controls you. Sin commands of you, and you obey. You are in bondage to it. You are, you are captive to it. It is your master. And to give you an example of what that would look like, let me talk quickly about the sin of anger as an example. To be enslaved to the sin of anger is to be controlled by your anger. You know, when, when, when you don't get what you want, you get angry. When others aren't acting the way you think they should be acting, you get angry. Little things that most people would just let pass. You don't. They infuriate you. And you, you, you take it out on the ones that you love and it ruins your relationships. The relationships that you, you have are not built on mutual love and respect, but they're built on fear because you're an angry person and they fear your wrath against them. And you might even, even know that it is wrong. That's the thing about enslavement to sin. You might even know that it is sinful. You might even, even not want to be an angry person, but you can't help it. You, you can't control it. Things just make you angry and you can't stop it. You can't, you can't get a grip on your sin. Your sin has a grip on you and has control over you. And now I want you to take this example of, of enslavement to the sin of anger and you can apply that to, to any other sin. You know, bondage to the love of money. Is the love of money your master? Is it what controls you? Is it what determines your, your attitude and, and your relationships with others? Or how about bondage to pornography and lust? Bondage to hatred and bitterness? Bondage to jealousy and envy over others? Bondage to anxiety? Bondage to fear? All of these sins can can control you and enslave you for your whole life. But we read these beautiful words. Jesus has come to set us free from our captivity to sin. Jesus comes as the great and mighty liberator who has defeated sin and now offers you freedom from that bondage. Do you feel enslaved to your sin? 
Do you feel like there, there are sins in your life that you hate and that you want to turn from them, but you just feel like you can't? That you try and you try and you try and you fail and you fail and you fail. Well, know that if you are united to Jesus Christ through faith, there is freedom and victory over that sin that Jesus offers to you. And by God's grace, you are no longer a slave. For the, for, for Jesus says, for the whom the Son sets free, he will be free indeed. And so when temptation comes and, and you hear the voice of that old master in your head saying, you know, take the apple, fall into sin, watch the video, get angry here, say what you want to say. You should worry about this. This is something that, that, that is dangerous and you should be afraid. When that old master comes in and tells you those things, you don't have to obey. You are free from your sin. You are free to do what is righteous by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when those moments come, come to him. Come to your great liberator because he has set you free from that old master of sin. Now on to the third part of Jesus' mission. It says that he will give sight to the blind. Now this has both literal and metaphorical application. As we read through the gospel, we see that Jesus heals many blind peoples. And this was, this was something that is new. I mean, in the Old Testament, there are, there are no instances or miracles in which a blind person receives their sight. And so this, this miracle specifically marks the, the coming of the Messiah in these last days. And but, Jesus, but, but on top of that, Jesus also comes to cure an even greater blindness. In John 8, Jesus comes and he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. See, apart from Jesus, all of humanity is under this this ever-present darkness. Our, Our hearts are blind to our own sin and our need for righteousness apart from ourselves. <clears throat> and, and I'm sure you, you know this, A, from your own life before you became a believer, but also when you talk with people who don't know the Lord. I mean, have you ever been, been talking with someone and, and being like, why, why don't you just believe this? And like, all of the evidence is, is right there in front of you. Now, this, is, this is the greatest gift of, of hope and grace that is being offered to you. The, the truth is so clear. Why won't you just Believe it. Open your eyes and turn to the Lord. Well, the reason is, is because they are blinded to the truth of the gospel and to their sin. Their, their sin has created this darkness that has prevented their ability to see the truth and believe the truth. And no amount of evidence will remove that darkness. But Jesus is able to. Jesus is able to heal the blind eyes of the believer. Like he, he's, he's healed our blind eyes of our hearts. Jesus approaches and, and the darkness dissipates. John 1 verse 4. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, Jesus can 
give sight to the spiritual blind. We can't change the hearts of people. We can't open their eyes to the truth. But Jesus can. And as a quick point of application, this is why prayer is so essential when we're seeking to see the lost saved. God must change hearts if we are to, if someone is to receive the good news of the gospel. And so we can labor and labor in the work of evangelism, but apart from prayer that asks the Lord himself to work, that work is in vain. That work is in vain. And now fourth and finally, Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Verse 19 says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now it's interesting that Jesus stops his quotation here. Because in Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 2, the verse continues on. It says, he comes to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it goes on to say, and the day of the vengeance of our God. Now why does Jesus stop quoting the verse halfway through? Well, it's because in Jesus' first coming, he comes not to judge the world with wrath, but to save the world. Jesus will come again and will come in full and complete wrath, putting an end to all of the wicked on this earth, righting every wrong, punishing every evil, once and for all casting the enemies of God into the lake of fire. But that was not his mission in his first coming. He didn't come to bring vengeance, but the year of the Lord's favor. Now, Jesus here is almost certainly bringing up here the themes of the year of Jubilee. And I'm not sure how many of you are are familiar with this idea of the year of Jubilee. But we read about in Leviticus chapter 25. And here's how it's described in Leviticus 25. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. And then Moses goes on to tell us what's all entailed in this year of jubilee. Slaves are set free. Debts are forgiven. Land is restored. Families that were separated from because of work or indentured servitude are now brought back together and reunited. And essentially, God is, God is granting to all of the inhabitants a fresh start, a, a second chance, a new birth. And Jesus, he picks up on this theme. Jesus has come to proclaim a even greater jubilee. He has, he has come to proclaim the good news that through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, your debts can be forgiven. Your freedom can be restored. Your status can be changed from an enemy of God to a child of the living God. <coughs> and you can be reunited once again to your Lord and your Savior, Jesus Christ, if you will come to him in repentance and faith. And what's even greater is that this jubilee, it's not every 50 years. It starts now when Jesus says this has been fulfilled and it will last for all of eternity. It's not a year, but an eternity that we shall be free from our sin and united to our God. And so this is the mission of Jesus. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Why? What, what is, the, is the mission that his Father has given him? 
Well, it's essentially, as we've titled this sermon, to seek and to save the lost of whom we were all once among. And now going back to our story, what's the response of the people to this? Verses 22 to 29 show what their response is. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your own house, in your own town as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Then he goes on to tell the story of Elijah and the story of Elisha. And at the end of that, verse 28 says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out. out. They drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Now it's interesting because the people here go from being like quite impressed with Jesus. They're marveling at his teaching to all of a sudden wanting to kill him. Just a few moments later, he goes from being a hero to zero in a matter of seconds. And so what, so what has changed here? Well, it boils down to the fact that they, they refuse to accept this message that Jesus had come to save the poor in spirit. See, the the Jews in Jesus' hometown are are having a hard time wrapping their head around this truth. First, they say, this is the first sign, isn't this Joseph's son? And so they hear his teaching, but then they come to realize, isn't he just the son of some some carpenter from Nazareth? They're already already questioning how a great and mighty Messiah who is going to liberate could come from such poor and humble beginnings. And then Jesus says to them, he, he, he beats them too, and he says, you guys are probably going to want to see a miracle to believe me, aren't you? And then he further solidifies this idea of them, of them not trusting the Lord, them not willing to accept this idea of being poor in spirit by telling them two stories of people that God has come to save. First, he mentions the story of Elijah. Elijah goes outside of the land of Israel during this severe famine that the Lord has brought, and he provides food for a a widow, and and he heals her son. And he also mentions then the story of Elisha, who heals the Syrian war commander Naaman from his leprosy when he comes to visit him. And now what is is linking these two stories together? Well, and, and, and why is Jesus mentioning them? Well, it's because in both of these examples, Elijah and Elisha heal people who are in the the poor in spirit category. You know, in, in Elisha's case, in Elijah's case, the, the woman is, she's not only a widow, but she's also a non-Jewish widow. And she, she and her son are actually in the story, they're, they have uh, bread and oil in this jar and they're about to eat their last meal and then they're about to go and die because the famine is so severe. But then when Elijah comes, he says, hey, can I have some food? I'm really hungry. And the woman trusts that the, the words that Elijah says to her, and she gives Elijah the food, and as a result, she is saved. God provides for her food that she can live throughout the famine, and, and she blesses the Lord God. And Naaman, and a, 
a, another non-Jew, an unclean leper, he also displays extreme humility by trusting in the Lord to heal him. He goes to Elisha and he wants to see Elisha because he hears that he can heal. And Elisha doesn't even come out to meet him. He just says, hey, tell this guy to go bathe in the river seven times and he'll be healed. And at first Naaman is upset. He's like, really, I could have thought of that if that was all that it took. Someone would have figured that out. But then after, he humbles himself. He trusts the word of the Lord, trusts the prophet of the Lord, and God heals him. And you see, these are the type of people that Jesus has come to save. Those who will humble themselves before the Lord and say, I need you and I trust you, God. But unfortunately, that's, that's a no-go for the people of Nazareth. And the fact that Jesus would, would extend grace and unrighteousness to Gentiles over them as the righteous Jews, that's too much for them. They refuse to believe the words that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so as a result, a, a mob forms. They, they drag Jesus out of town. They're hoping to throw him off a cliff and kill him. But verse 31 says, verse 30 says, but passing through their midst, he went away. And so there would, there would be a time when the mob would come and grab Jesus. And Jesus would say, this is the time. You, you can take me. You can crucify me. You can kill me. But today would not be that day. And so he, he manages to slip through the crowd and continues on in his ministry. And a real sad part about this is that Jesus never returns to minister in Nazareth. And you read through the Gospels and you'll see that this was their chance to humble themselves, to embrace the Savior but instead they rejected him. In their own self-righteousness, they've rejected the anointed one of God, their long-awaited Savior. And I want to close with a few quick points of application, some of them personal, some communal for our church. At the beginning of the sermon, I mentioned the story of a judge and a convict. And I asked you which one you, th- which one you thought had the tougher road to coming to Christ. I think that from our passage we see that the answer is actually that of the judge. See, it's, it's, it's hard to recognize your own spiritual poverty, your own spiritual barrenness when your circumstances are prosperous and well. When you've had, had a life of relatively good value and when you've had relatively good morals in comparison to the rest of the world, it can blind you as it blinded the people in Nazareth, that the good news of the gospel is for those who are poor in spirit, for the humble, those who are, are willing to admit that they need Jesus and that, they, that we bring nothing to the table to offer God. We do nothing to make ourselves acceptable before God. And really my concern is this, is that do you recognize that there is nothing that is good within you? Do you recognize that your only hope in this world is Jesus? Do you recognize that apart from Jesus, you are a slave to sin? Do you recognize that the humble 
Is the one who leaves justified not the one who is good in the eyes of himself or in the eyes of others? Or do you think, you know, that you're, you're a pretty good person, so God will treat you well on Judgment Day? If you do think that, may the Lord humble you and have mercy on your soul. And pray that God will humble you to see that it is only in and through Jesus that we can be made new. And then secondly, and this is more of a communal application, the church is called to be an extension of the ministry of Christ. We've, we've studied here Christ's mission. And so the question you need to ask yourself is, now does that reflect my mission in life? Does that reflect your mission in life? Now, what, is your primary, what is your primary purpose for being here? Now, is your purpose to have a good job, to have a big house, to have your mortgage paid off, to have your kids go to university and be successful, to have as much free time on your hands so you can enjoy the pleasures of this world? Or is your mission the same as that of Jesus? Proclaim good news to the poor. Proclaim liberty to the captives. Bring sight to the blind. Proclaim forgiveness of sins in the year of the Lord's favor to the lost of this world. That is our mission. That is our goal. And we must make sure that all other things in our life, our our work, our hobbies, our ambitions and desires in this world, they all take a backseat to this great mission that the Lord Jesus has started and that the Lord Jesus has given to his church to complete and fulfill. Let's pray.